The ushers have instructions that if you try to let any of your kids out, they're going to block the door. Would you pray with me just for a moment? Our Father, we, uh, we know that we've come to you in prayer a number of times this morning already, but uh, here as we open your word, Lord, we would ask you for a special time in which the Spirit of God would speak to our hearts. It is through the word of God that you change us, that you make us more like Christ, that you make us obedient, that you reveal your will. All that we know about you is in your word. And so this is the pinnacle, this is the height, this is the ultimate thing that the church can do, that is to open your word and to expound upon the truth, the revelation of God to mankind. And so we pray your blessing on this time. We pray that you would open our hearts and we pray for any who may be hearing this message, whether in this room or over electronic media, Lord, that do not know you, that this would be the day that the Spirit of God would move in their hearts to bring them to repentance and bring them to the kingdom of light. We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, this time of year, um, preaching schedules always get a little bit disjointed. I enjoy the spring and the fall when we settle into continuous exposition. Uh, Before the Christmas season was upon us, we were looking at 12 reasons to be joyful from John 6, 7, and 8, and we'll do that uh, today. But over the next couple of weeks, we're going to do some other things as well, and then we'll finish that series. But once we get finished with uh, John 6, 7, and part of 8, we're going to take a little bit of time out of John, and we're going to take eight messages to look at biblical parenting, um, parenting to the glory of God. I've done messages here and there on, on this topic, but I haven't really done a comprehensive treatment of what the Bible says about this. This applies to everyone regardless of what stage of life you're in, because it is God's word and God's word is a, is a salve to the soul and it's healing to the heart, regardless of the topic. But we're also living in a world that's clawing and grasping after the minds of our children. And we have to be disciplined and discipled and prepared with the word of God. So this will be for the purpose of training our young parents. It'll also be for the purpose of training all of you to help our young parents But there's one, I think, biggest reason to do this. Paul told Timothy that the church of Jesus Christ is the pillar and the support of the truth. And how are we the pillar and the support of the truth? We accomplish that task by hearing it and remembering it. So if if you haven't been parenting small children for 30 years or you don't have children yet, that's okay. You need to put this information in your mind, in your heart, because you are the ones that pass it on. And so for that reason, we're going to do that um, for eight weeks or so. But for today, in the midst of our holiday season, we have a chance to return to John's gospel. It's always like going back to a campfire to get to the gospel of John. So turn with me to John chapter 7. We'll be looking at verses 25 through 36. And we've been taking a somewhat unique approach to John 6, 7, and 8 because these chapters reveal so much about the glory and the character and the deity and the humanity and the beauty of Christ. What it does is it really gives us pause to consider how these qualities of Christ might contribute to living a life of joy and contentment as we reflect on the person of Christ. And so in each message so far, we've looked at one particular quality of Christ that, if you will let it, really contributes to living in joy. And we've defined joy simply as confidence, 
in providence that all that God does, all that he allows, all that he orchestrates is always good. We can trust him regardless of how difficult or painful or mysterious his workings might seem. And so today we'd like to consider the 10th reason to be joyful and that is remember Christ's heroics. Remember Christ's heroics. Jesus Christ never used his miraculous power as the son of God for his own personal benefit, for his own personal help. Satan tempted him to do this, but Jesus defeated him with the word of God. Now, someone might say that paying your taxes from a coin that you miraculously bring out of a fish is kind of cheating, and maybe that was using uh, his power for his own benefit. But even as he did that, he made a point to say that he's the son of God. He doesn't owe taxes to anyone. The reason he did that was to not be an offense. So he did it for the sake of others. Now I bring this up because Jesus has put himself in our text in a genuinely dangerous situation. He's brave, he's courageous, he's bold, he's daring. And I think it's important that we forget that, that we never forget rather that yes, He is God, but he's also a man. He's also human. He can receive and feel pain and anguish. He didn't come to earth like some sort of superhero who's impervious to any sort of pain or agony. He came like us. And so when he puts himself in the dangerous situation, it's real danger, it's real heroics, it's a real act of heroism. And so we need to get ourselves back up to speed here on what's happening in John 7. The Lord has come to the Feast of Tabernacles. And you recall that we are now late into his ministry. In another six months at Passover, Jesus would come to Jerusalem again, and this time he would be crucified. His brothers, early in chapter 7, had mockingly uh, dared him to go show himself at the Feast of Tabernacles, to declare himself openly that I am the Messiah, I am the King of Israel. And why would they say for him to do this? Because this is a feast, a festival, when hundreds of thousands of Jewish pilgrims from all over the world would be here. That would have been the perfect time. But you recall that his brothers didn't really believe in him and Jesus never does anything on anyone's timetable except the father's. So he came up alone, came up a little bit later. And you recall that the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, is this massive festival. It has uh, feasting and music and sacrifices and joy and remembrance of God's mercy. It's very much like a combination Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's all rolled into one. But Jesus stayed incognito for the first several days of the festival. No one knew where he was. No one knew that he was even there. But then he came to the temple halfway through the feast It's an eight-day-long feast, and he began teaching, and he made some fearless claims. Chapter 7, verse 16, my teaching comes straight from God. Verse 19, none of you is keeping the law of Moses. Verse 19, some of you are seeking to kill me. And in verse 24, you lack judgment, you lack understanding. And so the crowds, both those who are honestly trying to listen to Jesus preaching and those whose stone-cold hearts are set only on harming him. The crowds are shocked at what he's doing and what he's saying. As a matter of fact, all throughout the passage that we're looking at this morning, they're asking questions, about a half dozen of them, question after question after question. And Jesus doesn't back down. He stands his ground and he fervently makes his claims all the more. 
If I could put it this way, what he's doing and saying right here would roughly be the equivalent of going to Mecca, the center of Islam, and street preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know you're going to do that for about an hour, and then no one will ever hear from you again. That's what he's doing. What he is doing, in essence, is signing his own arrest warrant and writing his own death sentence. And Jesus demonstrates three types of heroism, which my hope is that it'll encourage you that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you're on the right side, you're following the one true living God, and you're following, by the way, the bravest, the most heroic, the most courageous man who ever lived, a very kingly, heroic man. So three types of heroism. Jesus will demonstrate heroic proclamation, heroic determination, and heroic condemnation. Let's look first at his demonstration of heroic proclamation. The drama begins to play out in verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that he is the Christ? Verse 14 tells us that Jesus had begun teaching, had begun proclaiming the true gospel and himself as the means to salvation from sin. Now, it's important for you to remember that first century Judaism was essentially an apostate religion of self-righteousness and works-based righteousness. So for Jesus to proclaim salvation through repentance, to tell ethnic Jews, you have need of a savior, you have need to repent. What he's basically telling them is you've gotten it all wrong. You have missed the boat. Makes me think about how many millions and millions of Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and Muslims who all believe in Jesus, by the way. They all believe in Jesus, but not the Jesus of the Bible. They believe in the Jesus who was created by God. But how shocked will they be when they see the Son of God in all of his glory who now offers no forgiveness, no opportunity, and no grace and offers only judgment. Verse 28 of our passage here says that he was proclaiming his message. It's a word that means to shout, to cry out, to call out. This is not quiet. This is not a gentle talk over a cup of expensive coffee somewhere. This is pleading. This is proclamation. This is preaching. This is hollering, as we used to say in Texas. And what was he hollering? What was he shouting? Why do preachers sometimes shout? Jesus shouted because most who listen are spiritually deaf. And from a human standpoint, the preacher is to do all in his power to get the attention of those who are running as fast as possible into the arms of their true father, Satan. And so it is the job of the preacher to get attention. There's a lively discussion among pastors. Very simple question. What is the difference between teaching and preaching? And whole articles and books have been written on this. Pastors and shepherds of the church, we're called to do both. Well, let me give you a very simple difference. Teaching is the imparting of divine truth from Scripture. But preaching, that is the unrelenting demand and insistence that you do something about that truth, that you respond to it. Preaching is what takes the truth of God and hammers it home into your heart. It's often said, don't beat me over the head with the Bible. Preaching precisely is 
beating you over the head with the Bible and saying, do something about the truth that you've heard. Teaching can do great things for your heart, but it does not do great things for your life. It is the preached word. And Jesus was a teacher and he was a preacher. And he was not afraid to shout the truth. If a pastor says, I'm really mostly a teacher, not a preacher, then I say, get out of the sacred pulpit and get out of the way for somebody who will proclaim truth and who will plead for the lives of his people. Because here we are in this beautiful room here where we get to sit on these comfy chairs and there's several hundred of you here to hear the word of God. No possible way every one of you is saved. No possible way. Statistically, it's probably not going to happen. And so it is the job of the preacher to proclaim and to beg and to plead and to take the truth of God's word and to screw it deeply into your heart until you have no choice but to either say, I refuse to respond or I will respond. I refuse to leave you with any other option. Jesus, what a great preacher. He's the sovereign Lord of the universe. He knows that in 26 weeks or so, he'll be arrested, he'll be tried in this very city. And yet to this primarily hostile crowd, Jesus is preaching. He is preaching, he is proclaiming. And the people listening to him are astonished and they begin to ask questions. First question they ask, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? Now I want you to know this. It says that some, in verse 25, some of the people of Jerusalem said this, These aren't the guests who have come from afar for the Feast of Tabernacles. The people in Jerusalem know the rumors. They know that the leaders of Israel, the leaders of their now apostate religion, essentially have been seeking to kill Jesus. Many in the crowd were defensive at first when Jesus pointed this out just a few moments earlier. He nailed them and they denied it immediately. You ever ever confront one of your kids with something and the first thing they do is lie? That happens with kids and adults. Well, this is what they did. Look at verses 19 and 20. Jesus said, has not Moses given you the law? And then he nails them. Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? What they say at first, the crowd answered, you have a demon who's seeking to kill you. And yet in verse 25, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? They acknowledge that they know that Jesus has a price on his head. They know that those seeking to kill him are literally in the crowd. They are there at that moment, but they're not doing anything for the moment. Now, the text doesn't tell us why the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the chief priests, why they're not doing anything yet. We won't have to wait long for them to make their move. But the crowd knows that what Jesus is doing is a gutsy move. They say, here he is speaking openly, literally means boldly, courageously, frankly, confidently, And this is so ironic because here you have the spiritual leaders of Israel standing in the crowd quietly doing nothing. Jesus is acting purely opposite to their actions. They should be leading the people to repentance. They should be saying at this Feast of Tabernacles, repent. They should be the ones saying, make your sacrifice a true sacrifice of the heart. They should be the ones saying, have an inward, real, repentant faith in God. Don't be a fake. But they're not. They're just quiet. And this unknown carpenter from a northern region of Galilee, from a little town filled with criminals called Nazareth, is doing their job. 
which is why, by the way, he officially fires them in the Gospel of Matthew and he assigns new leaders to Israel. You want to know their names? Matthew and John and Peter and James. And he assigns them, you're the new leaders. But these people in the crowd, they're so brainwashed to believe that their leaders are flawless and infallible that there's like a bunch of popes walking around they've come to the only conclusion that would explain the silence of the leaders. At the end of verse 26, they say, maybe the leaders know, maybe they've secretly determined that Jesus is the Messiah. Maybe they know something we don't know. They must be so smart. And so the crowd generally is confused. Their their confusion is based on a couple of things. It's based on Jewish mythology and it's based also on a misinterpretation of scripture, not on an actual lack of information. Look with me at verse 27. Here's their confusion. But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. They said, we know where he comes from. This is Jesus from Nazareth. Joseph and Mary, we we know them. The guy's a carpenter. He's got, you know, some younger brothers, a couple of sisters. We know him. He's just a regular guy. But they had misinformation. They said, when the Christ appears, no one will know where he came from. This is based partly in Jewish mythology and partly in the misinterpretation of Scripture. Uh, For example, Malachi 3 verse 1 says, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to the temple, as if no one will have ever seen him before. Now by the second century, this idea that the Messiah was just going to sort of poof, appear, was firmly ingrained in Jewish thought. But even in Jesus' day, this was common tradition that messiah would suddenly appear no one would know who he was he would be mysterious but this wasn't true at all micah 5 verse 2 says messiah would be born in bethlehem isaiah chapter 9 says that messiah would come from galilee from nazareth all they had to do was ask jesus hey where were you born bethlehem oh that's what the bible says but they didn't ask like Modern-day church members, they often believe mythology before they'll believe the Word of God. Oh, they underestimated Christ, though. They viewed him with a low view. They relied on a couple of pieces of misinformation. You ready for this? To determine their eternal destiny. Did you notice something horrifying that's happening here? The crowd is standing in judgment over Jesus. Wow. Wow. They should be concerned about a coming day in which Jesus has already warned is coming that he will stand in judgment over all men. In fact, as his ministry would draw closer and closer to the cross, Jesus would mourn about his own judgment more and more and more. But he's already done this. He's already given great warnings just in the gospel of John alone. John 148, Jesus told Nathanael, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. This should scare the daylights out of you because he's a sovereign and all-knowing God. He sees you. He knows you. You can hide absolutely nothing from him. All will be exposed. Would you try to run from Jesus? You can't. You cannot. You might be smart enough to fool those around you. You might be smart enough to fool your wife, fool your husband, fool your kids, fool other church members. You will not fool Christ. And you'll either repent now or you'll be made to bow in judgment later. Those are the two options for all of mankind. You will not hide from Christ. It is no wonder that the Bible says he is the one who has eyes of flaming fire. 
John 3, verse 20. Jesus said, everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. They will be exposed. John 5, 22, Jesus said, for the father judges no one but has given all judgment to the son. You say, oh, I'm gonna worship God. I don't wanna worry about Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, and he will be the judge. John 5, 27 Jesus has been given authority to execute judgment and then the following verses say that there will be a day when Jesus himself personally in person raises up resurrects all of mankind both those who followed him and those who rejected him those who have followed him who repented of their sin who came to faith who came to the cross he will raise them to a resurrection of life those who rebelled against him, rejected him, will be raised to a resurrection simply to have a body with which to experience the wrath of God for all eternity. And Jesus will do all of that. There will be a day, there will be a day that all who tried to hide from Christ, the omniscient judge, are brought forth. And Revelation 20 says, the books will be opened. The books. The books that say all that you've ever thought in sin, all that you've ever said in sin, and all that you've ever done in sin. But there is an alternative, and that is to humbly ask the Lord Jesus for mercy so that he takes your book and he casts it into the deepest parts of the sea. And the only book that mentions your name is the Lamb's Book of Life. And so Jesus is preaching hard. He's not letting up. As John MacArthur has often said, hard preaching makes for soft people and soft preaching makes for hardened people. So these Jews have bet their eternity on mythology, on the misconception that no one will know who Messiah is. But I noticed something as we look at this text. Jesus didn't take the time to get into a Bible prophecy debate with these hard-hearted Jews. Instead, he confronted their unbelief. And that leads us to observe our second type of heroism. Jesus demonstrated heroic determination. Heroic determination. In verse 27, the crowds are seeming to come to the conclusion that since Jesus can't be known, then he can't be Messiah. Or rather, since Jesus was known that he can be Messiah. He didn't say when they came to this conclusion, he didn't say, well, I I guess I'm not wanted here. I guess I'll resign and go live in the country. I'll move to Florida and play golf. He he didn't say, oh, looks like we need to have a little Bible lesson. And he didn't say, "You, you know, I'm so glad that on the faith journey that you're on, that maybe you might come to know that I'm the Lord. He didn't say any of that. Instead, he dug his heels in and he proclaimed, literally cried out and he shouted in verse 28. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. Now, first of all, they do know where Messiah is supposed to come from. Look at verse 42. Just a few days later. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? All they had to do was ask him one question. Hey, where were you born? That's all they had to do. But Jesus doesn't correct their misconceptions. He doesn't give them a Bible lesson. Instead, he confronts their hard-heartedness. 
This is a good lesson for us, by the way. When you try to teach the Bible to people with hard hearts, they don't want to hear it, and it just bounces off them. You pray for their hearts to be softened. And so he says, you know me, and you know where I come from. If you notice that I read that with a sarcastic tone of voice, that was on purpose. Jesus told the Pharisees in chapter 8, verse 19, you do not know me. So here in chapter 7, there's a flavor of irony and sarcasm and confrontation he's not saying yes you do know me he's not a, he's not conf- he's not correcting them he's saying you think you have me figured out you think you know where i come from you think you know who i am you think that because you know i grew up in nazareth that you've got all the necessary information you don't know anything they were missing the whole point they were focused on the details about the human origin of Jesus. They should have been focused on the divine origin of Jesus. If I could put it this way, they were focused on where he came from and he turns it around to say, no, you need to be focused on from whom I have come. Not the geographic location, but the person who sent him. And he nails their unbelief that the father has sent him and him you do not know. That's gutsy preaching. They were Jews in name only. They didn't know the God that they claimed to serve. The Apostle Paul expanded on this concept. He said in Romans chapter 2, beginning verse 28, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And in contrast to these Jews, Not knowing the Father, Jesus says boldly in verse 29, I know him, for I come from him and he sent me. This is bold preaching at its finest. He is just, just nailing them left and right. And he draws a very simple contrast. You don't know the Father. I do know the Father. He sent me. And so you need to believe in me so that you can know the Father. And he didn't let up. He was determined. He never decrescendoed at all. I mean, the closer he got to his own death, the more bold he became. One of my heroes of the faith is the great 18th century American preacher and theologian, Jonathan Edwards. And after 23 years of faithful service, he was voted out by his own congregation. He was thrown out. And so he preached one final sermon they probably regret letting him open his mouth one more time. And he preached from 2 Corinthians 1.14. This is the Apostle Paul saying, on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. And so Edwards made the point, he opens by saying, quote, ministers and people that are under their care must meet one another before Christ's tribunal at the day of judgment. And he expounds, his outline was the manner in which they will meet before Christ, the purposes for meeting before Christ, and the reasons that they'll meet before Christ. And he tells them in no uncertain terms that all of the motives and intentions of both the the church members and the ministers of the gospel will be, he says, quote, turned inside out, and the secrets of them will be made more plainly to appear than our outward actions do now. Then it shall appear what the ends are which we have aimed at. In other words, Every one of you will be held to account for your vote. 
He closed his sermon by addressing various groups of people. The first group he professed, he called them professors of godliness. And he tells them, some of you are still false believers. And he says, may you have a minister. In other words, the guy who replaces me. May you have a minister of greater knowledge of the word of God, since some of you have held on to your self-deception under my preaching. And this is ironic because this is said by the greatest American theologian of all time. Maybe the next guy can get through to you. The second group he addresses, he calls them those in a Christless, graceless condition, the ones who clearly have not come to faith. And he expresses sorrow at leaving them in this state and he begs them to come to Christ and he proclaims the gospel to them one more time. And he begs them and pleads with them. Then he addresses a third group to those brand new believers, to those just beginning to show signs of true faith. He says, stand firm in your convictions. Stand firm in what you've learned. Don't let Satan deceive you. And then the fourth group he addresses, he calls them the young people of the congregation. He says, walk in holiness. Don't follow the lusts of your heart. Today, he would say, don't worry about Facebook and Twitter. Don't worry about how many people like you. Follow Christ. And then fifth, Appropriate for us today, he addresses the children of the congregation. He calls them the lambs of my flock who have been so long under my care. He's been there 23 years. Every kid there was born under his watch. He knew them all. And he grieves not getting to see them come to faith in Christ and he mourns their continued lost state. And he says to the children, I pray, God, to pity you and take care of you and provide for you the best means for the good of your souls and that God himself would undertake for you to be your heavenly father and the mighty redeemer of your immortal souls. Then he closes his message to his entire congregation. Do not neglect to pray for yourselves. Take heed, you be not of the number of those who cast off fear and restrain prayer before God. Constantly pray to God in secret and often remember that great day when you must appear before the judgment seat of Christ and meet your minister there who has so often counseled and warned you. In other words, we'll see and we will all stand before Christ together and he will even it all out in the halls of heaven. That's a chilling see you later alligator because he would not relent. He would not relent. He preached and he preached and he preached. Listen, Jesus Christ wasn't on the verge of being fired from a pastorate. He was on the verge of being murdered by his own people and his preaching didn't let up. He was determined. As a matter of fact, at this moment, his preaching has now caused a division. And it's a good one. Verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Now this is the first of two times in just a matter of moments that an attempt at seizing Jesus is made. This first attempt was made by kind of the the unofficial mob. It was a mob reaction in anger by those who were offended by what Jesus had said that they did not know the Father. And so this was kind of a spontaneous reaction but it wasn't the father's timing and so he wasn't taken. Now we don't know how it was that Jesus avoided being taken. Obviously he could have just passed through their midst as he had done a couple of years earlier in Nazareth when his own townspeople were trying to throw him off a cliff. But in this case, he's still standing there. 
So we don't know how he avoided being arrested, but I think we get a hint as to a good possibility in verse 31. Verse 31 says that many were believing in him. The crowd's now divided. Many are believing. It's very likely they simply surrounded him and said, not on my watch. We're just starting to learn who this guy is. You're not gonna take him. And listen to their logic. Unlike the people who had false spiritual knowledge based in Jewish mythology, the believers used common sense. We have a very common sense faith. Listen to their common sense in verse 31. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, and remember, these are not the educated men. These are not those who have been in Hebrew school since the time they were three years old. These are the, the, the farmers and these are the, the herdsmen and the fishermen. Here's their logic. When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? In other words, is anybody going to outdo Jesus? Now, I want you to remember the original audience to whom John is writing. He's writing at about 85 AD. He's an old man. He's writing to post-Jerusalem Jews, those who have been dispersed after surviving the conquest and the destruction of Jerusalem that happened 15 years earlier in 70 AD. He's writing to Jews who are being given an opportunity to reconsider Jesus Christ, to reconsider the one who said this temple will be torn down. The one many of them and their fathers had rejected 50 years earlier. Now here's the logic of the believers. So if Jesus, if this guy right here, if he's not the Messiah, when Messiah does come, how is he gonna do more than this guy did? I mean, what's he gonna do to set himself apart? Uh, the, the implied and expected answer is obviously not. There's not going to be somebody else who does more. It was the miracles of Jesus which convinced them of the authenticity of Jesus. John chapter 6, verse 2, a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. You remember what John's gospel says about the miracles of Christ? In fact, John concludes his gospel by saying this. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. That's why the people said, look, this guy is a walking miracle maker. Who's going to outdo that? And the faithful Jew who believed the scriptures over traditions knew that Messiah would come in power. Isaiah 29, 18, in that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. What had Jesus been doing? He'd been opening the eyes of the blind. He'd been unstopping deaf ears. Similarly, Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Some of them did respond to the heroic proclamation and the heroic determination of Jesus those whom the father had ordained would come to faith but remember who else is in the crowd the Pharisees and the chief priests the chief priests incidentally were generally Sadducees they were those who were part of the, the important high priest families and the irony here is that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were a on opposite theological ends of the spectrum and b pretty much hated each other's guts but here they are together because they have one thing in common. They hate Jesus. They all have power and they see the writing on the wall. This guy could take it away. 
So they're distressed at the fact that many in the crowd are beginning to believe. And if the crowd starts a movement with Jesus at the head, then the day of power and control by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that's over. That was not going to happen. You know what the irony is? With their knowledge of Scripture, they should have been the first ones to recognize that Jesus was the Messiah. They should have known. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. This is the second attempt to take Jesus. This time it's the official attempt by the temple guard. Temple guard were Levites that were charged with maintaining order during the busy temple times, uh, particularly during the uh, festivals. The text doesn't tell us how they were unable to arrest him, but it's obvious since verse 30 says that his hour had not yet come. So after two attempts to seize Jesus in a matter of minutes with the leaders of Israel finally showing their true intentions, does Jesus say, okay, good time to call it a day. I think we'll just exit out now. You know, I've been proclaiming and I've been determined, but let's call it a day. Let's just leave well enough alone. Nope. He ratchets it up a notch and he turns up the heat. He doesn't defend himself. He turns on them and he goes on the offensive and he confronts these wicked leaders with his third type of heroism, heroic condemnation. Heroic condemnation. Instead of just walking away from those who were trying to sign a death warrant for Jesus, instead Jesus issues their death warrant and he condemns them. Verse 33, Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer and then I'm going to him who sent me. I will be with you a little longer, specifically six months. You have six months. By the way, Jesus is here expressing his full intention to carry out the complete plan of the Father, including his own death. Then he would be resurrected and bodily ascend into heaven, going back to the Father, to the one who sent him. He said, I'm going to carry out every part of God's plan. And then he issues an eternal condemnation. Verse 34, you will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. I think those are the most chilling words in the Bible. Jesus is going to the Father's presence and they will never be there. The next time these men will see Jesus will be at the great white throne judgment. And the Jews, in this case speaking specifically of the leaders that Jesus is addressing, they mock him. They mock him in return. Look at verse 35. The Jews, the leaders, said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? Listen, that's a joke. They're telling a joke. They're laughing their heads off. They're elbowing one another. Is he the Messiah? He's, he says he's going someplace. We would never go. We would never go to the Greeks. Maybe he's going to the Gentiles. This is a joke to them. What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. When they say, what, is he going to the Gentiles? Listen, they found the idea of Messiah going to the Gentiles repugnant. Messiah would never come to the Gentiles. Messiah is coming to Israel and he's coming to show the Gentiles what for. But they forgot scripture. 
Isaiah 49 verse 6 says, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? They would say yes and amen and amen. But it goes on to say, I will make you as a light for the nations, the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Their mockery of Christ would cost most of them their souls, by the way. Some would come to faith, some of the Pharisees, some of the leaders. Nicodemus, John chapter 3, would come to faith. Joseph of Arimathea on the leadership council of the Sanhedrin would come to faith. Acts chapter 15 says that some Pharisees of Jerusalem followed Christ. Luke calls them believers grammatically. It's a, it's a perfect participle, meaning those who continue on believing, they're not false believers. And of course, the most famous Pharisee to believe, the Apostle Paul. But these here in this crowd, these at the Feast of Tabernacles with every intent to kill Jesus, he told them, you will seek me and you will not find me. Now, if you know your Bible, if you know your Gospels just a little bit, you may be thinking of another passage that seems contradictory. Very much in contrast to what Jesus tells the Pharisees and the Sadducees here in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. And knock and you, it will be opened to you. In the context, asking and seeking for what? More accurately, for whom? Later on in his ministry, when Jesus preached the same message again, good preachers repeat good messages and Jesus did that. In Luke 11, he added something. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him or as Paul calls him, the spirit of Christ? By the way, who decides who gets to receive Christ? Christ does. He's declared to some, you will seek me and you will not find me. And he's declared to others, you will seek me and you will find me. So now that Christ has openly and publicly told the leaders of Israel that they're going to be eternally condemned by God, does Jesus decide to slip away quietly? Listen, by the way, what he's telling them, we use the phrase, go jump in a lake. In their case, this will be quite literal. It will be a lake of fire and they will not jump. He will throw them in. So what does he do? Okay, time to call it a day. Nope, verse 37. On the last day, three days later, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. And he starts preaching again. We love the hymn, what a friend we have in Jesus, but please never forget what a hero we have in Jesus. And his heroics went far beyond just bravely proclaiming the gospel in the face of danger and opposition. He heroically proclaimed that the next Passover was the last one ever. He heroically wept and cried out to God, sweating drops of blood in anticipation of the agony that he was about to endure. When he was being arrested, he heroically demonstrated his deity by knocking down the arresting soldiers with simply his words. He heroically allowed himself to be tried before sinful men six times, six trials in one night. He heroically allowed himself to be flogged, to be punched, to have his beard pulled out, to be spat upon, to be bloodied with a crown of thorns. He heroically carried his own cross until his own weakness from blood loss made him collapse. He heroically laid down willingly onto the cross. He didn't move his arms and legs. He didn't struggle as they nailed the nails deeply into his body. 
He even heroically made sure his mother would be taken care of even as he was on the cross. And he heroically bore the mysterious and the undescribed and indescribable wrath of God on your behalf. And to top it all off, he heroically asked the Father to forgive those who were executing him. And as fully God, he could have stopped all this at any moment. He could have called upon 72,000 angels, but he continued on and on and on. He drank down the cup of the wrath of God. He drank down every single drop so that there would not be one single drop left for you. He took it all. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Romans 5, 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. In other words, you would... You probably wouldn't die for a righteous person you didn't know. You might die for a good person, meaning somebody who's close to you, for your wife, for your husband, for your child. You might do that. But Paul goes on to say, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, Christ died for you while you hated him. And he still came after you. He still sacrificed for you. Why? The Apostle Paul tells us why in verse 11 of Romans 5, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. He came after you. He heroically died for you so that you could have a relationship with God, a relationship of love and acceptance. Jesus told the leaders, where I'm going, you cannot come. But you know what he promised you who believe in him? I will come again. And I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. It's my prayer that the heroic nature of Christ gives you joy and that that joy may be full in the coming year. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Father, thank you for the heroic nature of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's not just a nebulous, ununderstandable God who's only mysterious. He is also a man who's the bravest, most courageous man who ever lived. He was sentenced to death for crimes he did not commit, to be treated as a criminal. He was bound. He was imprisoned by those around him. And yet, in his power, he could have escaped at any time. Not only could he have escaped, he could have destroyed those who were condemning him. Not only could he have destroyed those who were condemning him, he, he, condemning him, he could have destroyed the whole world and simply started over. We never would have known. And yet, how heroically he walked all the way to the cross, stumbling under the weight of the cross, and yet making it there and laying down willingly on the one instrument that we needed to save us, the instrument of our own death, which he would take on our behalf. Because we could not bear your wrath, and he did instead. We thank you for our heroic Savior. May the memory of his love, his heroism, his courage, his bravery, his sacrifice, Continue to inspire joy in our hearts as we seek to love him and to serve him in return and in response. We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen.